If you have your Bibles, uh, please open up to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15. If uh, you'd like to use one of the Bibles that we've provided under your seat, that would be on page 820. So page 820 of the Bibles that we provided for you. We'll be in Matthew chapter 15 this morning, looking at verses 1 through 20. We're going to be talking about what it means to have true devotion to God. Now, let me just see by a show of hands, how many of you have ever been to New Mexico? Anybody been out west, New Mexico? That's quite a number of you, impressive. Uh, we're all the way out here on the East Coast. And I know we have several from you know, California with us this morning, even originally. But uh, I love going out west. And I had an opportunity just a few years ago to serve at this conference in New Mexico, just outside of Santa Fe. Now, even for those of you who've been in New Mexico, you've never been to the place I would guarantee that I'm about to tell you about. You see, it was lunchtime. I was with a guy who knew the area. And so we shot up the interstate just outside of Santa Fe. We get off on this exit, and he takes us down this kind of old state road. And we pull up next to this restaurant that really looks like a rundown shack. You've been to places like this before, right? And it was called, never forget the name, the Bobcat Bite. All right? So you walk in, it's crickety, you know, a wood deck kind of that you walk through. The door, you know, is creaking as you go in. Uh, the, uh, the restaurant itself may seat about 20 or so. Um, just a few tables. It's like kind of going to the north end. You know, there's not much room there, but it's always packed out. And what I soon discovered is, Although this place on the outside looked like a dump, on the inside, man, they had that business going on. I mean, they were, this is a burger joint, okay? So the best, biggest, juiciest, most delicious burgers, you know, west of the Mississippi, probably, arguably, at the Bobcat Bite, just outside of Santa Fe. And so... You can identify with this story, right? You've been to that place before. It may look pretty nasty on the outside, but when you experience what's going on on the inside, you're like, man, I'm in. I'm coming back every chance that I get. And you know, we, we as a culture, we are often really good at judging, you name it, people, places, based on what the outside looks like. And oftentimes, in our pursuit of God, this is how we view people as well. We look at what their life looks like on the outside. Externally, do they have it all together? And you know what? God is most interested not in what we look like on the outside, but what we look like on the inside. And this is exactly the confrontation that Jesus has with the religious leaders of his day in Matthew 15, where he says, you appear to be devoted to God, but I want to teach you about what it looks like to have true devotion to God. And so if you would, read with me these first nine verses of Matthew chapter 15. Matthew, the tax collector and good follower of Jesus Christ, says this, Then the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say... 
If anyone tells his father or his mother, what you have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. See, what Jesus is teaching in this passage, and what I hope that we will learn this morning is this, is that true devotion to God flows from a heart of worship rather than external righteousness. True devotion to God flows from a heart of worship rather than external righteousness. You see, what ha is happening here in, in Matthew chapter 15 is that Jesus has been doing his thing. We've talked about this the past few weeks. Jesus devoted his ministry to telling about the truth of God, the kingdom of God, and also putting forth a picture of what that looks like by the good deeds that he performed. And so we just find out in Matthew chapter 14 that Jesus feeds the 5,000, the crowd of 5,000. That only counted men, by the way, so there's even more people than 5,000 there, women and children presumably there as well. And he not only feeds the 5,000, but he walks on water. And at the end of Matthew 14, we see that Jesus healed as many who could even touch the fringe of his garment, it says in the last verse of chapter 14. And so the religious leaders of the day get wind of this and they say, hold on just a minute, we've got to go check out this man and his teaching and what he's doing because he is gaining a huge following. And this is what happens in Matthew 15. Notice that it says the, the Pharisees and the scribes, these were the religious leaders of the day. I mean, these were the guys who had it all together. On the outside, they were the ones who were devoted to God, really living their lives for God. It says that they came from Jerusalem. You see, Jesus was in the region of Galilee here. So this wasn't like, you know, a trip around the block for the Pharisees and scribes. I mean, they had to journey to get to Jesus. It teaches us something of the magnitude of the seriousness with which they came. And in verse 2, they ask him this question. The question is really an accusation. They say, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now let's just stop right there and understand something here. The Pharisees and scribes are not bringing a hygienic charge against Jesus and his disciples. All right, this isn't about having clean. It's not like, you know, your mother when you were little told you, Why, did you wash your hands before you eat, okay? This has to do with the religious practices of the day. You see, the Jews, particular, not all Jews, but particular Jews, these Pharisees, would make up commands, traditions, that went beyond what God had prescribed in the Old Testament, the Scriptures, the Hebrew Scriptures which are, by the way, the Christian scriptures too. And so they said, you know, in order to really be accepted by God, you have to follow these rules. You have to do the ceremonial washing. It was just really a, a, a small amount of water that they would run down their hands before they would eat. And so they're upset because Jesus doesn't subscribe to their oral tradition. This oral tradition was actually then captured in what we know as the Mishnah. So Jesus did not 
recognized that tradition as authoritative, whereas the Pharisees and scribes viewed that oral tradition as equal or, in some cases, superseding the Word of God. This is, of course, man-made religion at its best. They added to God's law to create more ways to look good in the sight of others and to seek God's approval based on their external righteousness. We could put it another way. They wanted to be recognized by others and accepted by God because of their good works rather than responding to God's grace in their life and doing those good works because of what God has done. That's the gospel. The other is simply religion understood in kind of a negative uh, construction. And so we see that in verse 2, the Pharisees asked Jesus about his disciples, but let's make no mistake here. The Pharisees are not as so much concerned about the disciple as they are concerned about Jesus which teaches us a great lesson about discipleship, right? I mean, we as followers of Christ are to be like Christ. We are to follow his teaching in every single way that we can. And so when the Pharisees ask about the disciples, they're really saying, hey, we want to know what you think, why you are practicing this. So how does Jesus respond? Well, let's read verses 3 through 9 again. Because Jesus does not pull any punches when it comes to answering this accusation from the Pharisees. This is what he says. Matthew says, He answered them by saying this, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And so right off the bat, I love how Jesus does this. He does this over and over again in the Gospels. He answers their question with another question. He says, you have an accusation for me? Well, here's one back at you. He was so smooth about how he interacted, meeting people where they are, persuading them, hopefully opening their eyes to see what's going on uh, with their lives. And so Jesus, again, he just shoots straight with them when it comes to their religiosity. He says, look, you are being hypocrites. You see, he, he argues that while Jesus and his disciples may be guilty of breaking the commandment of men, the Pharisees are actually guilty of breaking the commandment of God. And he, and he brings this example that they would certainly affirm in the fifth commandment. He says, you guys understand the fifth commandment, right? Honor your father and mother. Well, not only do you, are you overly concerned with these ceremonial rules of washing hands, Here, here's another example for you. You fail to honor, fail to fulfill the fifth commandment of honoring father and mother because what you have instituted is this practice called, Mark calls it Corbin. Corbin is a word that simply means a gift devoted to God. So when particular Jews had 
parents in need, oftentimes what they would do, instead of fulfilling their responsibility to care for their parents, they would say, oh, Corbin. In other words, this, these possessions that I have, this money that I have is devoted to God, and so I'm not going to give it to my parents. So for the sake of this man-made rule, this tradition, they nullify, Jesus says they make void the commands of God, the word of God. See, Jesus here teaches us that we should affirm the Ten Commandments. We should love God's commands. The, the, the law encapsulated in the Old Testament, the God's moral laws, to be fulfilled by us. In fact, they were all fulfilled in Christ. He said that I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. The Bible is clear. We are to love, respect, honor our parents, even when they may kind of get on our nerves, right? Even when they may kind of overparent, you know, like I'm 30 now, all right, I'm a pretty young guy still, but I'm 30, and I realize that even when you turn 30, your parents don't like stop wanting to parent you. Anyway, anyone can identify this? Maybe we have a few, you know, maybe a little bit older than me this morning, maybe a lot older. I mean, as long as our parents are, you know, our parents, they hopefully care about us enough to try to, you know, give their counsel and wisdom and advice, all right? Someone's going to receive a call tonight, by the way, from your parents. And you're going to have an opportunity to honor them, at least in the way you respond. I mean, does anyone have a Facebook account like your parents, like right on your wall? I mean, it's like you can't delete that comment from your parent, right? I mean, even if it's like, you know, horribly embarrassing to your 700 friends that might see that comment, it's like, you know, honor (laughs) our father and mother. So Jesus says, look, for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You have canceled, you have stamped your disapproval on the word of God. And when we do that, when we elevate our traditions over God's word, we are refusing to do his will. You see, the the Pharisees and the scribes were guilty of what we call legalism. And this is so important to understand this here, because legalism is a distortion of the gospel. What is legalism? This is what legalism is. Legalism is performing our way to God's approval. Think about that. You might want to write that down. Legalism is performing our way to God's approval. Legalism adds requirements in order for us to be loved and accepted by God. It is essentially a Jesus plus kind of theology. All right? So let's maybe take it from the historical context to today. Jesus plus washing your hands before you eat is how you're really accepted and loved by God. Jesus plus circumcision is how you're really loved and accepted by God. And this was the book of Galatians, by the way. I mean, go go home this week and read the book of Galatians, and what you're going to find is the Apostle Paul gets heated over these group of people known as the Judaizers, who uh, they, they added to God's law by saying, you know what, Jesus is good, and we, yeah, we need Jesus, but we need more than Jesus. We need to really continue in this practice of, of circumcision in order to really be accepted and loved by God. 
And so if you read the New Testament carefully, what you'll find is in all of Paul's letters, he always opens with a greeting and then a thanksgiving. Man, I'm so thankful for you. I'm so thankful for God's grace in your life. Read Galatians. It's not there. Why? Because Paul is hated because they have changed and accepted another gospel. They have sought to achieve God's grace based on their own performance. And we do this as well, right? God will love me more if I always pray before my meals. God will love me more if I read my Bible for at least 30 minutes every single day. Surely he'll love me more. Jesus plus you fill in the blank. What is it for you? Jesus will love me if I don't sin this week, right? That's a legalistic heart that we all are prone to having. Legalism plus, legalism is Jesus plus anything. And that is simply a a perversion of the gospel. And so it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus brings some really strong words to the table. I mean, it is emphatic. You see in verse 7, he says, You hypocrites! He says, Isaiah had it right when he prophesied about you 700 years ago that this people will honor me with their lips, They will talk a good game. They will speak the language of the church. They will look good on the outside, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus says that while we may look really good on the outside, If we're a mess on the inside, God is not excited about that. See, the Pharisees and the scribes lacked true devotion to God. Their hearts were far from God. Their worship was vain, empty, weightless. Because their hearts were not devoted in such a way that they were fulfilling the true commands of God in response to who He is. So what about us? Jesus is no more impressed by our religion than Jesus was the Pharisees. Our religious pursuits mean nothing if they are disconnected from a heart that is truly responding to God based on what he's done for us, not based on what we could try to do for him. God is interested in our hearts. This is why 1 Samuel 16 God would say to the prophet Samuel, hey, when you go down to Jesse's house and you look at these sons of his who are to be, you know, the next king of Israel, the king over my people, he says, don't look at the outward appearance. Look at the heart. Listen to 1 Samuel 16, 7. He says this, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So with these words, Jesus challenges the very foundations of the religious practice of the day. And perhaps we need to be challenged in these areas as well. I mean, 
we sometimes get caught up in our traditions and make rules that go beyond Scripture, right? I mean, think about this. What do you wear to church? What do you wear? Well, what is the pastor wearing today? I, mean, I, could, I could rock a robe. It's not in our tradition, but I could rock a robe if, you know, that was best or appropriate. I mean, I, we have no problems with that. Maybe the church down the street has pastors wear a robe, priests, you know, religious leader wears a robe, no sweat. But this can be a tradition, right, in the church. Like, if you don't have a suit and tie, it's like you're kind of sinful. Like, God's not pleased with you if you aren't dressed to the nines at church. We make all kinds of these traditions up, right? I mean, you can wear a suit to Redemption Hill. You can rock some shorts, jeans, whatever. We're, we're okay. Because, why? Because God's more interested in what's going on on the inside, and on our hearts. We also get caught up in our devotional pursuit where it sometimes just devolves into a routine. I mean, you've been there, right? Sunday morning rolls around, you wake up, it's time to go to church. And like you've made it to the end of the service, you've sang and heard the sermon and you know, prayed with everyone else and even said hi to all your friends. And it's like, psh, did God do anything there? I mean, we get in these routines. I mean, we are to be disciplined with the way we live our lives, right, as believers. I'm not saying that it's not value. There's not, obviously, there's value in coming to worship, right, on Sundays. There's value in reading our Bibles regularly, praying regularly, being devoted to God in a disciplined way. This is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4. He says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. So, so, so we should chase after these things and pursue God, but not in a way where it just becomes mundane and routine, where our hearts are not engaged. Do you feel more loved or less loved by God based on your performance? If so, you have a legalistic heart. I love what C.J. Mahaney says about this. He says that we change what God intends as a means of experiencing grace into a means of earning grace. So in our pursuit of God, Let's not take the good things that God gives us as a way to experience Him and to know Him and then change that into a way to be more loved and accepted by God. Because here's the truth. This is what we've talked about the last couple weeks. The crucifixion of Christ, the finished work of Christ, the resurrection of Christ assures us that we can never be more loved by God than we already are through the gospel. And so if we are trusting in Christ worked for us. The righteousness of Christ, not our own righteousness, this is how we're loved and accepted by God. Does God love to see his people worship him? Does God love to see us wake up and want to feast on his word? Of course he does. But he wants us to do so with a heart that is devoted from him. Which brings us to our second point. True devotion to God flows from the heart. You see, up until this point, Jesus has been what we can assume in this private conversation with the Pharisees and, and, and the scribes. It says in verse 10 that, Then he called the people to him and said, Hear and understand. And here's the lesson. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. 
And so he says that God is not concerned about what, God is concerned about what comes out of a person's life because that tells the story of what's in the heart. It reveals where that person stands with God. We could understand this word defile as unclean or unrighteous. See, Jesus is saying that sin comes from the heart, not our diet. What comes out of our mouth defiles us, not what goes in. Now let's just pause and give a quick caveat here. This is not a license to eat whatever we want to eat, drink whatever we want to drink. I mean, I went to Cold Stone last night, got me a quart of, you know, shaka comb. All right? I mean, is that permissible? I hope so. All right? I might have some real, you know, praying to do if not. But, but what, what if I do that every, for every meal? You know, what if I ate a quart? That, so God has clear instructions on gluttony, drunkenness, and other practices that would enslave us rather than edify us, right? But the point is that it's not what goes in, it's what comes out. This is what God is concerned with. And so after Jesus speaks with the crowds, in verse 12, we see that the disciples then come to him and they say, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? See, the disciples didn't have the Pharisees figured out quite like Jesus did. And so they ask him, Jesus, did you know they were offended by what you said? The Greek word is skandalizo. I just bring that up because it teaches us that, that the Pharisees found the words of Christ to be a scandal. They were scandalous words, scandalous teaching, because he is undercutting their system of earning their way to God by external righteousness. And so, sadly enough, Jesus teaches these disciples about the Pharisees, but he, we're going to find out that it's not just the, the Pharisees who still need to understand, it was the disciples as well. But before we go there, look, look back in verse 14, I mean, excuse me, 13 and 14. See, Jesus makes two bold assumptions, uh, excuse me, assertions through the worst of, use of two word pictures. First off, in, in verse 13, he says that every plant that my Heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. So, in other words, these Pharisees, though they may appear to have it together, are not truly legit because they're trusting in their own righteousness. They are spiritual imposters, posers, if you will, when it comes to their pursuit of God. But then he says, he gives this other picture, he, he calls them blind guides. You see, the Pharisees probably somewhat haughtily, would refer to themselves as guides of the blind. And Jesus says, these who claim to be guides of the blind, they are really blind guides leading the blind. And so we should draw an application there and note that not every pastor you see on TV, not every religious leader is teaching the truth of God. I mean, we see this all over the place. Maybe, maybe you've had a similar experience as I have over the past few months. Um, we live over by Wellington Station. Right now we're about to move because our rent got jacked up, but that's another story in and of itself. Um, but, but I've seen these bumper stickers on light poles. It says, we can know. We can know.com. 
I'm going to the high school uh, for a basketball practice one day, and I see this guy across the street from the high school with this huge stake and this you know, banner that says, we can know, the end of the world is coming, judgment day is near, May 21st, 2011. It's judgment day, the rapture will come. Then, beyond that, I'm pulling up to Springstep on March 20th, one of our last monthly gatherings before we started our weekly services, and there are all these buses, charter buses and trailers, lined up in the Hyatt Place with this, we can know, Judgment Day, May 21st, 2011. This is when the rabbit, I just wanted to give everyone fair warning, okay, if you're, you know, stuck around on May 22nd, then, you know, you must not know Jesus, because these, these people, really, this is what their website says, okay? This website serves as an introduction and portal for, to four faithful ministries, which are teaching that we can know from the Bible alone that the date of the rapture of believers will take place on May 21st, 2011, and that God will destroy this world on October 21st, 2011. I mean, these people honestly drive me crazy. I mean, people associate, you know, like them with Christians in general, probably. I mean, it's just, it's, 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 it's a tragedy. And, you know, these people are probably sincere. This is not an attack on these people, but I would have to say that they are blind guides. I mean, Jesus clearly says himself, no one knows the day when Christ will return. And so I'm not so intimidated by these projections by this group of people. And neither should you be. Let me encourage you, don't embrace what you hear without discernment. Even what you hear taught at Redemption Hill. Don't embrace it without discernment. Don't embrace it without comparing Scripture with Scripture. This is what Paul commends the Bereans for in Acts 17, 11, when he says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And from this we learn that God needs us to have spiritual sight. This is a great way to pray, by the way, for people who don't believe in Jesus, that God would open their eyes. For those of us who do believe in Jesus, that God would continue to open our eyes as we hear from his word, as we study his word. Ephesians 1.18, Paul was praying for the saints in Ephesus that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened, that they may know the hope to which they are called. Even in the Old Testament, David in Psalm 119, he prays, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. But as we mentioned a minute ago, it wasn't just the Pharisees who were lacking spiritual understanding, spiritual sight. It was also his disciples. Verse 15 says, But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And Jesus says in verse 16, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And so Jesus here teaches us a couple of more truths. 
that I want us to see this morning. Number one, true devotion flows from the inside out. This is what we sing about this morning. God wants our righteousness to flow from a heart that's changed by his grace. It's not our external righteousness that makes us approved by God. It's what is going on on the inside that then results in a changed life on the outside. The lesson is this, what a man or a woman truly is necessarily affects what he says and does. I mean, we like to excuse ourselves, right? We say, you know, I don't know what I was thinking. How could I have lied to her? How could I have said that about my coworker? How could I have these thoughts? What comes out of our lives is simply an indicator of what is in the heart. That's why we need our hearts to be constantly renewed by grace as God does his sanctifying work. And so we need to be changed from the inside out. That's where true worship, true devotion flows from. But then we also see, just to reiterate that, Christianity is a matter of the heart. Listen to J.C. Ryle. This was a 19th century Anglican pastor in, I believe, Liverpool, England. He said this, What is the first thing we need in order to be Christians? A new heart. What is the sacrifice God asks us to bring him? A broken and contrite heart. What is true circumcision? The circumcision of the heart. What is genuine obedience? To obey from the heart. What is saving faith? To believe with the heart. Where ought to Christ, dwell, Christ to dwell? To dwell in our hearts by faith. What is the chief request that wisdom makes to everyone? My son, give me thine heart. And to this we could add, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart. God wants our hearts. The heart refers to the ter- our total personality in Scripture. It includes our mind, our conscience, our will, our desires, our affections. It's the core of who we are. God wants all of us to be devoted to him from the inside out. He is after our motives, not simply our actions. And so when you spend time with God this week, or perhaps next week when you come to church, please come back, by the way, that would be a good thing. When you come back to church on Sunday, God is interested in your heart. He wants you to come not just simply because it's your duty, but because it's a delight to worship and know God. Matthew 5.8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I mean, do you want to see God? Do you want to see God at work around you? Do you want to see God at work in your life? Pursue a pure heart, a heart that's devoted to God. See, here's the key distinction between the approach of the Pharisees and the teaching of Jesus. And this is what Tim Keller says. So good, so good. Religion says, I obey, and therefore I'm accepted. The gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. We are either going to trust in our works, our external righteousness, to be accepted and loved by God, 
or we will see what Christ has done for us, understand that we can never live the life that he lived or die the death that he died for us. And so now, because we have been changed by his grace, because we are accepted and loved by God, now we engage in all kinds of good works. We go out and clean up the streets in Medford Square, like five to six to seven to eight of us counting kids did yesterday. Not because we want people to, you know, write up Redemption Hill in the paper or, you know, to, to be perceived as this righteous, goody, two-shoes kind of people or church, but because God has changed our hearts. And so, let me ask you, do you serve to look good in the sight of others? Or do you serve because you love God out of response to what God has done in your life? You say, Tanner, how do we cultivate a heart that's truly devoted to God? Well, first and foremost, this is, this is just like point 1A, I guess. Um, the, the way that we can cultivate a heart that's devoted to God is by receiving a new heart from God's Spirit. You see, there are two kinds of people in this world. If you boil it all down, there are those who trust in themselves to earn their way to God, and there are those who trust in Jesus. One is a system of religious works, to be approved by God. The other is a system of Jesus is the only one who is perfectly righteous and approved by God. And so it's through connecting with him, through faith in him, that I can be accepted by God. And so if you've never trusted in Jesus, and we're not going to ask you to walk an aisle this morning, you know, after we sing the final song, but if you are still curious about what it means to follow Jesus, to love God, to be secure in your relationship with God, please talk to us about that. We have a, a little box on the back of the connection card that actually says, you know, I'm interested in learning more. I want to speak with a pastor. If that's you, man, we want, to, we want to explore more with you about what it means to truly know God, truly walk with God. All right, the real first point. Number one, fill, fill your mind with God's truth. I mean, do you love God's Word? It's our life. It's our spiritual nourishment. We need to feast on God's Word to know Him well. Number two, draw near to the cross. We said two weeks ago, the cross changes everything. It changes the way that we love others, the way we view others, the way we parent, the way we give, the way we serve. And so we are to draw near to the cross every single day. Meditate on the gospel, what Christ has done for us. And now we respond in light of what he has done. And then finally, Rely on the power of Christ's resurrection in your life. You see, if we do not rely on the power of Christ's resurrection, if we do not rely on grace, if we do not say with the psalmist, I love you, O Lord, my strength, that's Psalm 18.1, if we don't live like that, we are going to become tired and burn out and weary, and we're going to probably fall out of the race. And so we cultivate this heart that's devoted to God through knowing him in his word, drawing near to the cross, relying on him, relying on his grace. That is what is going to undercut legalism in our hearts. Jesus is not impressed with our church attendance, with the amount of time we spend in prayer each week, with how many friends we bring to church, with all of our good deeds. They don't flow from a heart that is changed by his grace, and that is full of worship and love for him. So what is the power of Christian hope? Why does Jesus matter? 
The power of Christian hope is this. Jesus frees us from having to earn God's acceptance through our own righteousness and gives us new hearts which enable us to truly worship him. Let's pray together. God, these are weighty truths from the lips of Jesus this morning. And if we're being honest here today, surely all of us, whether right now we're trusting in our own righteousness to be even accepted by you, saved by you, have eternal life with you in, in, in heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see that that's not going to cut it. But Lord, for those of us who already have embraced you as Savior and Lord, we also are often guilty of basing our walk with you on our own performance. And so God, I pray that you would help us to understand what it means to have a heart that's truly devoted to you, and even more than that, that you would help us, beginning today, as we go throughout this next week, that you would help us to respond to you out of a heart that is full and worship to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.